My name is Ernie Neufeld, and my interpreter this morning's name is Jody. She is going to be speaking on my behalf. This morning's scriptures reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 to 40. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show they do lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Thank you. You're okay. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mike. If, uh, if this is your first time or first few times joining us, welcome here. I'm the discipleship director here at Seoul, and we're continuing through our sermon series through the gospel according to Mark. And so we've, we've just had our teaching text read to us this morning. And this is a practice fairly new to us here at Seoul, but it's not new at all to church throughout history. And there's two, two reasons we, we want to commit to this ancient practice. And one is that in, Paul says in Tim, 1 Timothy 4.13, uh, he encourages Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture like we just uh, participated in. And this was a common and important practice uh, beginning in the early church as publicly reading Scripture made it accessible to everyone and served as a way of teaching the church to live from God's story rather than the world's. And secondly, publicly reading Scripture allows the opportunity for us to see the diversity that makes up this church and that makes up the kingdom of God. Scripture reveals that people of all nations and tongues make up the kingdom of God. And so seeing people from all languages, ages, cultural demographics, reading from Scripture will only rightly remind us of this kingdom reality. So we're looking forward to continuing in this practice together. So before diving into this passage, Mark has divided his whole gospel account into three acts, much like a Shakespearean drama. In Act 1, where we're given a bunch of stories of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God to people through teaching, healing the sick, and freeing the possessed, 
all of which have people asking the question, who is this man? And we see a variety of responses from people who either earnestly seek him, like the disciples, to those who are simply entertained by this new teacher, like the crowds, or those who take offense at him, like the religious leaders of Israel. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah in Mark chapter 8 opens up Act 2, a series of stories and conversations that Jesus has with his disciples on their way to Jerusalem as he seeks to teach them what it really means for him to be the Messiah. However, his best efforts, despite his best efforts, his disciples remain confused and even frightened as Jesus tells them on multiple occasions that as the Messiah, he's going to die. Jesus and those following him make it to Jerusalem with his triumphal entry, riding on a donkey, kicking off the final act of Mark, the act we currently find ourselves in, which is all pointing to how Jesus becomes king. After entering the city, Jesus heads straight to the temple where he drove out the dishonest and greedy from the temple courts, asserting his authority over the temple and undoubtedly halting all that was going on there. And this particular action kicked off a whole week of debating with and confronting the leaders of Israel as they regularly sought him out to question him in order to catch him in his words in the hopes they could find an adequate excuse to condemn him and his ways. And from our passage last week, it appears that Jesus has actually come out on top After he provides such a great response to the question, which commandment is most important, Mark chapter 12, verse 34 says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so this moves us to our teaching text, and if I were to title this particular teaching, it would be expectation versus reality. Have you ever held a certain expectation of something or someone, and the reality just did not line up with your expectation? Krista and I had our second child in November 2021, and our neighbor gifted us very kindly with family passes to go to the drive-thru Christmas lights. And so here we were with our newborn son and not quite three-year-old daughter, excited for this wholesome family uh, outing with our hot chocolate and our desire for a pleasant drive to see the beautiful lights. When we got there, though, the line was insanely long, if you've ever been there. And we hadn't even gotten to the start of the lights before everything started to derail. Oliver is screaming in his seat. Quinn is incessantly asking when we're finally going to see the lights. Krista's trying to rein them both in, and I'm figuring out if there's a way to get out of the line and just go back home. Nothing changes by the time we get to the lights and we speed through them, get home, and attempted to move on from the disaster that was that evening our reality did not line up with our expectations. On the other side of the expectation spectrum, Krista and I hadn't had kids yet, and so we were the fun aunt and uncle of her family, and Krista had a great idea to take our two nephews to go see the movie Zootopia. The only impression I got from the trailer was that it was a movie about some happy-go-lucky bunny and a sly fox. It looked like the lamest movie I did not want to go. Krista makes me, of course. And so I reluctantly begin watching this movie, now with the hopes that at least our nephews will have a good time. 
However, as the movie progressed, the happy-go-lucky elements began to fade, and it revealed itself to be a fantastic crime noir film that had me at the edge of my seat. To this day, Zootopia is one of the best animated movies I've ever seen in my life. The reality did not line up with the expectation. And so moving to our passage this morning, in a bit of a cryptic way, Jesus now poses his own question a question that pierces the heart of the religious leader's expectation of who the coming Messiah was to be. And so Mark 12, verses 35 to 37 says, While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Jesus questions the teachers of Israel's view and expectation of the coming Messiah. But first, who and what is a Messiah? Because this word isn't really used today in any significant and meaningful way. And so in Hebrew, the, words that, the word that's translated as Messiah is Mashiach, which means anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, there have been a number of anointed ones, those who have had oil poured over their heads to symbolize the authority being given them by God in order to represent God to the people and the people to God, the majority of which were those who ruled Israel uh, as kings. And so think King Saul, King David, or one of David's descendants. And God actually promises David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants, an anointed one, would one day come that God would establish his kingdom and he would sit on the throne forever. And so one of the primary, if not the primary story arcs of the whole Old Testament is the hopeful expectation of this coming Messiah. However, the history of Israel awaiting the arrival of this king was a tumultuous one. All of first and second kings is a history of the majority of David's descendants failing in spectacular ways, refusing to follow after God and ruling Israel in ways that ultimately led to its downfall and destruction at the hands of Babylon. After their exile, many Israelites returned, and this is all recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they returned to Jerusalem, rebuild her walls and the temple. However, as we see in Ezra 3, verses 12 to 13, amidst the celebration of their return and the rebuilding of God's symbolic home, there was also tears from those who were old enough to remember the splendor and glory of the first temple. What was being built just was not what it once was. Despite the return of their kingdom, something was missing. And so the hopeful expectation of the coming promised Messiah continued because surely He would make all things right again. 
Not only this, but the final book at the end of the Hebrew Bible is what uh, today we call Second Chronicles. The only difference between the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament that we're familiar with is that some books are arranged in a different order uh, in the Hebrew Bible. But the final words of the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 to 23, which is a decree from Cyrus, king of Persia, that all exiled Jews may return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. And so the ordering of the Hebrew Bible ends on a huge cliffhanger with Jews essentially looking out towards Jerusalem, presumably wondering who will lead them and when will this, their expect, expected Messiah finally come. And so fast forward now to the time of Jesus and Israel finds themselves in a familiar place, conquered and oppressed by the latest great empire of the day, Rome. And so the promises of God for a coming Messiah from the line of David became in the hands of the religious leaders and teachers of the law propaganda fueled by their hate for Rome. Their messianic expectation was for a royal figure, a descendant of David, who would come overthrow Rome with power and violence as a victorious warrior king establishing the kingdom of Israel and asserting power and authority over all in a way similar to that of David himself, the man who conquered giants and expanded the kingdom in might, territory, and influence. Now, returning to Jesus' question, he isn't questioning whether or not the Messiah would actually be a descendant of David. Scripture and God's promises reveal that he will be. Rather, he's questioning the dominant understanding of the day that the Messiah would be a warrior king who would violently overthrow Israel's enemies. And so the question Jesus is asking is not, will this expected Messiah, this future king of Israel, be a descendant of David? Rather, it's what kind of king will this descendant of David be in reality? And he responds answering his own question by quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Tradition held that King David wrote this psalm and that it was a poetic reflection of the coming future Messiah, the very one that God had promised and that the religious leaders were hoping for and expecting. However, Jesus points out something crucial, that King David, an anointed one himself, a Messiah, a Mashiach, who was ruling Israel under God's own authority, reveals that his God, Yahweh, is not speaking directly to David, but to David's Lord. And by pointing this out, Jesus is yet again posing another question to the teachers of the law and all those listening. How can someone who is simply a future descendant of David, be considered David's Lord. If this coming Messiah was merely a physical descendant, surely David would be his Lord, as he was the patriarch and head of the Davidic family. I would never consider my grandfather, uh, I would never consider myself Lord of my grandfather. If anything, he would be, he would be my Lord because the head of, of the family. So Jesus is trying to show that this Messiah may well be a descendant of David, but he's going to also be so much more than an earthly king from David's line doing what earthly kings do. And we see throughout Scripture 
an image of what kind of king this Messiah will ultimately be. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We see here that God's promised Messiah, the one from the line of David, will be filled with the Holy Spirit and anointed to bring good news, healing, and freedom to the down and out. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 3 says, Here is my servant, this is God talking, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Once again, the Messiah would be one filled with the Holy Spirit who would bring justice, yes, but hardly in the way of a warrior king. Rather, this passage is revealing the gentleness, not the violence of this coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 to 6 says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles." that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Not only would the coming Messiah gather and restore Israel, but He would also be a light to all other nations as well, so that God's salvation would come to all, not just Israel. And Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, another name for for Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." Finally, we see in this passage that the coming Messiah would not be a victorious warrior king on the back of a war horse. Rather, he would come in humility, riding in on a donkey, and would actually rid Israel of its weapons of war, speaking peace to the nations, not violence. The Messiah would be a king of peace, not one calling out for violent revolution like the teachers of Israel were expecting. So this was, this was a very brief glimpse from the Old Testament. If you really dove into it, there's so much more uh, of who the Messiah would be. Um, but, sorry, but who the Messiah would be, it, 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 this is an image that Mark and the other gospel writers desire to show is actually revealed in Jesus. At the very beginning of his gospel account, Mark actually shares with his audience who he knows 
who Jesus to be, saying in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And here we see how a descendant of King David could also be David's Lord because Jesus is not only the son of David, but he is also the son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, Mark then goes into his first act by sharing stories that reveal Jesus to be the Messiah and son of God. At his baptism, we see that the Holy Spirit descends on him and fills him while God speaks his delight for his son, as Isaiah mentioned in the passages we just read. Not only that, but Jesus, anointed by God, then goes out proclaiming the good news, heals the sick and hurting, and frees those oppressed by demonic forces, setting the captives free. Jesus is doing all of the things that Scripture has prophesied this coming Messiah to do. Yet all the while, as Jesus is doing these things, he's also telling people not to say anything. Like when he healed a man with leprosy, he tells the man in Mark chapter 1 verse 44, see that you don't tell this to anyone. Or in chapter 1, verse 34, recounts how he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Not only this, but when he's with his closest disciples, he asks them in Mark chapter 8, verses 29 to 30, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. If Jesus is Israel's promised and long-awaited Messiah, why tell people not to say anything? One biblical scholar comments that his hesitation to be labeled as Messiah, even though that is rightly who he is, is due to the political and militaristic connotations that the title had been given in first century Judaism. The expectation of who they thought the Messiah should be was not ready for the reality revealed in Jesus. And the culmination of Jesus revealing what kind of Messiah he would actually be comes in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Biblical scholars are are convinced that in describing himself and his mission this way, he's linking himself to the suffering servant poem found in Isaiah 53, which outlines that God's coming Messiah would not be a warrior king, but a suffering servant, something that Mark has been painstakingly trying to show his readers. He would be an anointed one who would experience rejection, sorrow, pain, and even death on behalf of all others, taking on what fallen humanity deserved so that we can experience peace and once again be reunited with God. And so biblical scholar Mark Strauss states that at his first coming, Jesus had not come to defeat the Roman legions, but to establish the kingdom of God by offering himself as a ransom for sins. It's no wonder Jesus didn't want anyone saying he was the Messiah. His reality did not line up with their expectation. 
And the entirety of his final journey to Jerusalem was Jesus teaching his disciples what it really meant for him to be the Messiah, a suffering servant who was and was going to lay his life down for others, and none of them were getting it. So in order to continue helping them come to understand who he really was, he warns them here against the teachers of the law. Mark 12, verses 38 to 40 says, And as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely." As Israel's Messiah, Jesus condemns Israel's religious leaders, this time a group called teachers of the law, or in other translations, scribes. And these were learned men who knew how to read and write within Jewish society, and and within Jewish society, because of this particular skill, they often became people with religious authority, especially concerning the interpretation of the law and how to observe it in daily life. They were the ones who could read it. And their interpretation of who the Messiah was to be, as I've already mentioned, was that he was going to be a warrior king who would overthrow Israel's enemies and establish a geopolitical kingdom. Holding this view of who the Messiah was to be led them to live their lives in a particular way. They were essentially preparing themselves to be people of importance in the Messiah's coming kingdom. As a learned group of religious elite, surely their coming king would want them as members of his court, people of high status and importance, people who could help enforce and administer his coming kingdom. And so, with this future expectation, they lived lives of pomp in the present to signify not only their their importance then, but their coming importance when the Messiah was to come. They were intoxicated by their own social, political, and economic desires. But Jesus reveals the fruit of their life as pride and at the service of themselves, not others. Holding this expectation, it's no wonder as teachers of the law that the disciples of Jesus had such a skewed image of the Messiah themselves. It's clear that the views and way of life lived by the teachers of the law had infected the disciples and with them the general population of Israel. Moments after Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah, it says in Mark chapter 8 verse 31, and he began, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Once Jesus says this, Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him for saying such things. Because how could a victorious Messiah experience rejection, suffering, and death? There's no victory in that. Only then to have Jesus rebuke him in turn, saying in verse 33, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And after Jesus told them again of his coming death and resurrection in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 32, the disciples, reeling in confusion, begin arguing who among them is the greatest and thus would be of higher status in the Messiah's coming kingdom, to which Jesus replied, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And finally, as they near Jerusalem and the triumphal entry of Jesus, his disciples James and John, in what seems to be an attempt to politically backstab the other disciples, they go to Jesus on their own and ask him in chapter 10, verse 37, if they could sit at his right and at his left when his kingdom comes. Positions of status and power for followers of any earthly king. And knowing their misguided thinking and the anger of the other disciples at this attempted coup, Jesus responds with his messianic description we've already looked at, that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To his disciples at the time, following Jesus the Messiah was supposed to mean fame and status and importance just like the teachers of the law were teaching and living. Jesus makes it clear, however, that following him as Messiah means rejecting violence, pride, and status, and acting in service and love towards others, dying to self, just like he was doing. And so how are we to respond today to a suffering servant Messiah? And the first step is to reflect on who we currently believe Jesus to be. Like the religious leaders of his day, people today, including ourselves, turn Jesus into a caricature to suit whatever agenda is dearest to their hearts. Depending on what circles of social media you're a part of, you see either blatantly or not so blatantly, Jesus, the condemner of sinners, calling out immorality in the world, but turning a blind eye to the hypocrisy in the church. Or perhaps the nationalist military leader flying your flag of choice, perpetuating a political policy rather than the gospel. Or the social justice warrior who loves the poor but hates the rich. Or the wise guru who dispenses helpful life advice for advancement in whatever area they're pursuing. Or the permissive parent who's all love and refuses to hold them accountable for any of their actions. The reality is Jesus is none of these things and far more than all of these expectations. He is, as King David reflected on in Psalm 110, our Lord. Deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to make Jesus into our image rather than submitting ourselves to be made into His. Is the image of Jesus that we hold on to one of a suffering servant who willingly laid down His life for others? And is it turning us into people who would do the same? If it's not, then perhaps our expectation of Jesus is not lining up with the reality of who He really is. And we need to take a second step then to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and minds, however difficult that's going to be. 
We're to take Jesus at his word that he is who he says he is. The Messiah who came not to elevate uh, himself and his followers above others, but to serve all out of love and to lay his life down. And he calls us to do the same. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 36 says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? The call to take up our cross isn't about suffering for suffering's sake because of others. It's about suffering for others, even our enemies or those who don't deserve it. Because Jesus loved, Jesus loved, served, and died not just for his followers who loved him, but also for those who hated him and were actually calling out for his crucifixion. It's also why Paul in Philippians 2 verse 3 says that we are to have the very same mind as Christ, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And as we learned last week, we of course can't do this on our own, but only when we abide in the vine remaining with Jesus and learning from Him and His ways. Only then will our expectation line up with reality so we can love others as suffering servants in the image of Jesus. So in ancient times, the one who offered a blessing raised their hands, and those wanting to receive a blessing did likewise. So Soul Sanctuary, may we lay down all the false expectations we hold and be drawn into seeking and knowing who Jesus truly is. And in light of the beauty of the cross, may we seek not to be first, but last, to love and serve all in the image of Jesus for the glory of the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now go and live the church, and we'll see you next week.